This week's podcast was sponsored by the U.S. Green Building Council. Hope you like it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Z Prime on the Grid, our show about issues concerning the energy industry. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, research analyst, Aaron Hardick. How you doing today, Aaron? I heard there was some flooding up in your area. Yes, there is, Dylan. So Austin has had quite a bit of rain over the past four or five days. It's almost like we've been living in Seattle with the weather. Um, but the hill country is currently flooding. The hill country is kind of west of Austin, so not really where I am. I live in pretty much a, a mile from downtown Austin, but it's causing a lot of problems out there. People are evacuating their homes. Um, the 2900 bridge, which is a main bridge that connects kind of the hill country to the rest of the city, was actually washed away by this flooding. They're opening some of the dams between um, Lake Austin and Lake LBJ to, to help mitigate that. So the LCRA is really on that right now. But there's there's a lot going on over here because of the weather. So I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it and you know make sure that nothing gets too intense for us here in the city. But yeah, there's there's a lot going on. It sounds like uh, the people of uh, the people of the hill country in Austin could uh, use a good microgrid. Segway nailed it. Um, so, yeah, we've got uh, we've got two guests on today to talk about uh, a microgrid in uh, Champaign, Illinois, uh, with developed by uh, Amarin and SNC. So we have with us the. Manager of the Technology Applications Center at Ameren, Rod Hilburn. How are you doing today, Rod? Doing well. Really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about our project. And back on the show, we have uh, the Senior Director of Global Business Development at SNC, David Chiesa. How are you doing, David? Welcome back. I'm doing great, Dylan. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, to come back on the show. I'm uh, I, I'm, I'm glad I didn't do poorly enough with the Star Wars references last time to where you didn't invite me back. So good to be back. Thank you. Uh, I See, if I, if I was as sharp as I claim to be, I would have had a great Star Wars reference that would have answered, your, that, would have answered that. But we did, I didn't. Well, so I'm Jedi, gonna, of course. Just, uh, re, <laughs> oh my God, it was right there. Uh, <laughs> Come on. Uh, wow, I am in the exile. I must go. Failed, I have. Ah, that was good. That was good. Thank you. Oh, man, I want to cut that, <laughs> but I think I should leave it in. Uh, all right. <laughs> so what uh, you guys developed this mi- this microgrid project, and what's unique about it is it's the first medium-voltage utility-grade microgrid that received uh, peer gold certification. So what does that certification mean, and what requirements did you have to meet to uh, earn it? So I'll, I'll start. Um, the certification not only demonstrates the accomplishment of a successful distributed energy resource integration or microgrid project, but also on Amarin, Illinois' overall high performance standards and reliability, security, and customer service. The peer certification requirements not only focus on our individual project, but they also focus on how Amarin, Illinois operates to meet our customers' needs. So it was really not just a project assessment, but it was also a company assessment on how Amarin, Illinois operates. Yeah, from uh, from SNC side, to get the peer certification, the, probably the first thing you have to do is define peer, right? Performance, excellence, and energy renewal. And 
for us, you look at it and it's a, it's a pretty interesting tool. It started off with the Galvin Electricity Initiative. Um, and if you're familiar with uh, the Galvins and the concept of perfect power that uh, John Galvin uh, wrote a book about, the concept is that you have the ability, you have the technology to develop this, this power distribution system that would be uh, far beyond anything that's, that's seen today. And, and the pure rating system became a way to talk about and, and measure exactly how close the existing systems were to becoming that, that ideal concept. Um, now, perfect power is very difficult to achieve, and so we don't use that term anymore. The USGBC um, you know, came up with uh, an acronym that more closely resembles the other rating systems they have, like LEED. Um, and, and the concept is that there's four different criteria that you get rated on. And when you have a project that passes all that criteria and gets certified, that just means that you're, you're improving upon an already great system to make it even better and closer and closer to that ideal. So peer certification for us is, is, is big. Uh, SNC's had a long standing relationship with the Galvins. So having the, the first utility scale microgrid to receive that that certification is uh, is pretty special for for SNC, and, and we're really happy that we were able to do it with one of our best customers, one of our, our hometown customers, uh, Ameren, here in Illinois. And Dylan, actually, some of those key criteria um, that David mentioned for determining a peer certification, you know, those really include things around reliability and resiliency, energy efficiency and environment, uh, operations and safety, and really and grid services. So. Sometimes people can get confused, which David also mentioned, between peer and lead. So lead really evaluates the design, construction, and operations of residential, commercial, and industrial buildings. But peer, this peer certification, it assesses like utilities, campuses, cities, and, and even like transit authorities for high-performing power systems. So that is kind of that big differentiator between lead and peer, which I'm not quite sure many people are too aware of quite yet. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, when we talk about peer, you know, there's a, a few things that, uh, that it measures and you, you covered them, but reliability and resilience, operations management and safety, energy efficiency in the environment, grid services, innovation, exemplary performance, and then the, the regional priority you know, what, what priorities placed on it uh, in, in that specific geography. But really, there's, there's kind of three things, Aaron, that, that kind of differentiate that for us is, one, you measure your product, your project. And, and AMRA doesn't specifically talk about this, uh, but I'm sure it, it plays into it. Uh, the first one is, if you tell somebody you're going to build a project, uh, how do you tell them that you did it successfully? How do you, you show that you followed through on that? And PEER gives you a, an important way for a third-party validated um, evaluation of the system to tell you that it, it met those requirements, which is, is pretty good. So you know, that whole return on investment is provided by a, an independent third party. The second thing is it gives standards to an industry that, that doesn't really have them. So you, you have this concept around, in this case, microgrids, where you know, what is it? What should it do? How should it function? What benefits should it provide? Well, Peer gives you a framework to rate your projects against so that it, it starts to develop some of those standards. And then Rod mentioned this earlier to say, it's also not, can you, not only can you measure your project against a standard 
and not only can you provide uh, you know the uh, return on investment type information from a third party, it also gives you an independent evaluation against your peers, right? Not to make a pun there off a of peer, but the idea is it does give you a, an independent validation of how does your system, your project stack up and, and rate against other people's similar projects, not just in an adjacent territory, but really on the other side of the world because the standards are the same. Um, so those three things are really the, the the values or the resonating principles that that drive why SNC promotes peer. So with that criteria in mind, how does uh, this Illinois microgrid stack up with other similar types of projects? How did going into this with that mindset make this a unique microgrid project? So uh, the uh, you know we we went through the process with SNC and with the peer group to. Um, provide information and documentation as far as uh, for each of the different questions in the different categories. And uh, ultimately, the uh, the results that we received back is that we achieved a gold level of certification uh, through the, the peer assessment process. But probably just as importantly from my perspective, it also gives me a a list or a, it gives me an analysis from an independent third party of things that we could do to modify our project and to improve upon our project, and that's actually some of the things that I'm contemplating at, at the very at the present time to be able to give me a better project. So uh, I, I guess what I, what I want to get at is why did you initially decide to build this microgrid? What example did you want to set with okay. this project, and how does it benefit communities? Okay, so with this project, um, we we actually had a. a project before this called a smart grid test bed where we were uh, required to build a facility to be able to test smart grid devices. As part of that process, we also had folks that were looking at what was happening in the utility industry, what what negative things or what positive things were happening that uh, we needed to get prepared for with a grid of the future type concept. And so we were noticing or observing that utilities in Hawaii, utilities uh, on the West Coast, East Coast, down South, we're, we're having some issues with uh, renewable energy uh, producers, solar, wind, uh, we call them distributed energy resources. And so even though we didn't have a lot of uh, DERs that were be, being connected into the Amherst, Illinois um, systems, we felt it was a matter of time before uh, DERs were going to start hitting our systems, and so we needed to get ourselves prepared for that inevitability. And so instead of trying to read it from a journal or, or read other people's projects, we decided that we needed to have firsthand knowledge to be able to um, understand how the individual DERs, how solar, how wind, how energy storage, how those individual DERs operate and what their operating characteristics are, but more importantly, how can you integrate those in order to address some of the problems that are occurring on the electric distribution systems? So we justified the project uh, based upon learning so that we could do testing and, and prove out uh, different concepts with those devices. And um, along the way, we have technical skills that our engineers are learning, but we're also learning about how to operate and maintain the devices so that in the future our, our Field employees will have that type of knowledge that we can share with them um, as we go on this journey to uh, learn more about DERs. With utilities, you know, we're seeing, that's exactly what we're seeing, right? The, the transition away from the traditional power distribution approach. 
um, more distributed energy resources. But that's exactly right, Rob. The biggest question is how do you integrate them with you know traditional power generation sources to where you know they're viable, reliable form of electricity on the grid. So it's always encouraging to see people try to get out ahead of this problem before DER penetration becomes too much for utilities um, to deal with. It's one of those situations where you have to get ahead of it because if you wait too long before penetration is too high, then you have a really big issue. Yeah, I agree. You're basically playing catch up trying to get out in front of um, you know, a situation that's already occurred to you. So we, we made the decision that we wanted to uh, allow ourselves some time to do the research and then provide the information to our, our individual employees so that um, we could uh, enhance our future design and enhance our future standards that we have for our distribution system so that uh, we hopefully can avoid some of the issues that other utilities have had to uh, to deal with. David, uh, the last time the last time you were on the podcast, episode 14, A Hive of Microgrids and Innovation. Check out our SoundCloud. You talked about how you've been working in microgrids uh, for a large part of your career. So, uh, what uh, we talked about, in, we talked a little bit about in the prep call about this thing about the microgrid concept. Uh, what what does that mean, and how can utilities uh, leverage that to their to their benefit and for the benefit of their customers? You mean the concept that. We're going to see these things penetrate all over the place. Exactly where we are, where where we are in terms of you uh, using distributed energy in these microgrids. All right, Dylan. Thank, thanks for the question. I, uh, I I also love the plug back to episode fourteen. Nice job. The uh, the thing that that always just grasps me about distributed energy is it's uh, one of those those hard trends. Um, it's one of those things that you just can't get away from, no matter how hard you try. Uh, so if you if you look just recently, Indiana announced in their their uh, resource planning process, the IRL, uh, that they're going to eliminate coal plants uh, in their in their state about 10 to 15 years sooner than they were otherwise going to retire their their coal plants. So that shakes up the the the. So that shakes up the landscape of what the energy production is going to look like just in that state. And we're seeing that happen all across the country. Um, in fact, in some cases, all across the world, uh, that the retirement of, of non-renewable resources happening, happening at a, a ridiculously fast clip, faster than anyone could have possibly anticipated. And, and as a result, you have to replace that generation somewhere because while the, the load isn't increasing at the rate it did before across the world, uh, because of energy conservation and, and some things like LED light bulbs and, and other really kind of low power innovations, it's still at least holding holding steady. And if that's the case, you've got to find a way to replace that generation. And the answer is, uh, with the cost of distributed energy coming down and the, the desire from the consumers for more clean sources of energy, i.e. non-carbon based, uh, you, you have to have that generation coming in as distributed energy, and it's going to be closer to the edge of the grid than it ever was um, as the centralized nature that we had. Um, there's a, a great illustration of that in the uh, in in Denmark. Um, I've seen several different pictures of the Denmark distribution grid in the 1980s, and then again in, in 2010. And the distributed nature of the energy that was added is amazing, and that was 10 years ago. 
so we're seeing the same thing here. We're seeing it everywhere. And as you get that distributed energy out closer to the edge of the grid, that's exactly what Rod's talking about, where you have the need for microgrids on the, on the utility side so that you can control that because the grid was already set up to control centralized generation. It did a very, very nice job of that for years. And, and so now you have to change the way you, you handle power, uh, change the way you, you protect it and, and uh, make sure that you're prepared for the next, the next wave, you know, the next stage of what this grid is going to look like. And, you know, with that hard trend of closure of carbon based centralized generation, yeah, the there's a natural outcome there of of a move towards distributed generation out to the edge and and therefore microgrids. So Rod, uh, you were talking earlier about the the journey of this project and how it's still ongoing. But uh, I want to take a step back from a step back for a bit and start at the start at the beginning of this journey. How do you go about uh, the planning process of a project this this ambitious uh what things what what things did you have to keep in mind and what things surprised you throughout the planning process well the having the understanding that uh, you want to look at your grid differently in the future you really need to take a look at what it is that you're trying to accomplish with your project what what's your goals and so for our particular project, it was a, it's, a, it's a research initiative to allow us to uh, develop technical understanding of, of the loads that are connected into our infrastructure, but it's also technical understanding of the generation sources, whether they be solar, wind, or natural gas generators, understanding their individual operating characteristics, and then taking a, a look back and comparing your load characteristics to your generation characteristics to make sure that you've got good matches uh, to be able to operate your system reliably and uh, consistently, you know, for, you know, 365 days a, a year, 24 seven. And so understanding um, what your research goals are, uh, other customers may have research goals that they want to have zero downtime. So they need to do a really good job of, of, looking at their loads, looking at their their chosen generation mixes, whether they want it to be solar and wind or renewables, or if they want a, a cleaner carbon um, type of generation asset where we chose natural gas, and then um, basically size your assets for those particular goals that the, uh, the individual might have. So a lot of ours uh, went into understanding how we wanted to use four different types of, of DERs, uh, the solar, the wind, the natural gas, and the energy storage. We wanted to have as much learning as we could. Um, part of the problems that we had during the project was the fact that in Ameren, Illinois' territory, Illinois is a deregulated state. Thus, we can't own generation. So in the middle of the project, we came upon the, uh, the question of, of how are we going to address uh, the fact that we can't own generation, and so we had to work with our, you know, our project partners with S&C to come up with uh, novel ideas as far as uh, we actually lease the assets. So when I talk about a project journey, uh, essentially the uh, natural gas, the solar, and the wind, I don't actually own those assets. Another company owns them, and I'm actually leasing them for 84 months. So understanding, um, you know, what it is, what goals are you trying to achieve with your project is is very key to uh, being able to 
bring forth a successful project. So, uh, what was what was SNC's contribution to that planning process? Because it, it sounded like you said that they were in there from the very be- from the very beginning. So, when um, original justification came back to us that we had an approved project from our leadership, the original plan was for us to have a three year project. We were going to take a year to to research, a year to design, and a year to construct. And what we got back from our leadership was that uh, this was late March, very early April of 2016, and uh, our leadership were very excited about the project, and uh, they said we had an approved project, but instead of three years, we had eight months. They basically wanted the project done by the end of the year, and so at that uh, moment in time, (coughs) we uh, figured out that we needed some help, so uh, we went out for proposals, and uh, fortunately, SNC was the winner of our proposals, and so from the very beginning, we had to have very clear concise uh, communications between our two companies to make sure that what we were asking for they could provide and what they were providing actually met what we were asking for. So clear and concise and uh, frequent communications between the project partners was uh, critical for us to actually pull this project off because essentially uh, we had about six six months and maybe a week of, of procurement and design and uh, we had about seven weeks of construction uh, in the latter part of 2016. So it had been in November and December where the weather wasn't all that great, but uh, we were able to safely pull this together. Yeah, from SNC's perspective, uh, you know, on the other side of that same process, uh, you know, we, we <laughs> there's a thing called the pucker factor, right? And uh, when, when Rod uh, came to us and said, hey, we need to do this and have it done by the end of December, uh, you know that was uh, that was a wake-up call because no one had ever done anything as complex as this in that short a period of time for both engineering and construction. Uh, you, you had to have all of that done by the end of December, and and just the the lead times on the on the major equipment was was already pushing uh, that that envelope to make it really really difficult to make that work. So one of the tools that we did first, which which really really helped. And I think clarified uh, things really well as a, divi- a division of responsibilities. And so we, we took all the parties that were involved in this, and, and there are a lot, right? There's, um, if you if you look at that microgrid, there's a, a northern wind turbine, there's um, a, a solar array uh, that's got three different companies, uh, different inverter, different uh, racking company, and a, and a different panel supplier. You had Caterpillar that provided the uh, uh, the natural gas engine. You had SNC that did the energy storage, but LG provided the the batteries, um, and and then of course we had uh, all the other equipment that was already already there, and we had to move the different um, construction resources in and out, cranes and people and and all of that. And you know, on, on top of this, this is an existing site, right? Uh, Rod's got work to do <laughs> as he's as he's going on. And so that was that was difficult, but by having that that division of responsibilities tied directly to the scope of work early on in the process kept people from doing double work and helped eliminate uh, some of those opportunities for, um, I guess you would say, uh, headbutting or or uh, double scheduling and, and things like that that could come up and, and cause delays or issues. Uh, on the project, so th- those are, I think are tools that that we used jointly because that's a that's a tool that you know the, everybody participates in. Uh, those are the things that really made a difference on the on the project and allowed us to meet that 
really aggressive, aggressive timeline. And just to give our listeners kind of an idea of, of really how big this project is, I, w- I was reading in the SNC press release around this project that you were, man- yeah, you had 10 to 15 different contractors playing a role in this with up to five being on site at one time, working 10 hour days, seven days a week. So that is, you know, I, that is a very big project managing across a lot of different parties and people and keeping track of who's doing what. And it also says that no injuries occurred. So that I mean, right. is very impressive. And you can tell that, you know, a lot of planning had to go into the execution of this thing. Well, and that's that's one of Ameren's overriding principles. When you do work for Ameren, um, you, you absolutely know that safety is going to be the number one priority. And because it's a it's a, a working site and we're interfacing with a, a live substation, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of coordination that goes into that moving uh, an entire wind turbine into this site where, you know, not to be overly dramatic, but there was about, I don't know, what do you think, Rod, 50 square feet of, uh, of terrain within which that, that wind turbine would fit. Um, and so it was a pretty exact location of where it had to go, and it's, it's 100 feet tall. So, you know, that, that, was, that was a significant challenge. And and I, I don't know what, what do you think that went in 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 about two weeks from the time the foundation was poured until the time the Nestle was up was was quick wasn't it? I would say uh, well yeah absolutely it was it was quick it was about ten days so we we had about eight days for the foundation and uh, once the uh, the turbine actually arrived on site it was it was erected in two days and uh, it had to be in a very specific location because of city ordinances that we have within. The town, the city of Champaign, uh, where it could be located was, was very tight uh, on the site, so it had to go in that in that specific location. So we had we had things like that all over the place, Aaron. Where you know you, you had that contractor in there working at the same time, you had Cat in there uh, putting in the, the the generators at the same time that we had uh, Premier Electric was the uh, the electrical contractor. You know they're in there doing wiring and. Yeah, you know, it was a uh, it was a tight space, but you know, you know, when you're working with Ameren, safety is always going to be job one, and you know, there's there's no job worth anyone getting injured, and and so that was you know when we finished, that's the first thing Rod commended us on. It was the first thing that Richard Mark talked about. Uh, it was uh, the first thing that uh, Warner Baxter talked about was, you know, the, there were no injuries on this. Uh, we fielded new equipment in a tight workspace on a really fast schedule, and and we did it safely. So, yeah, thanks for recognizing that. When you're working in Illinois, what kind of lunches do your workers get? Because I know when we're in Texas, we always get like, we always get like, uh, ta- we always get some type of tacos. <laughs> and if we were out here in Washington, workers tend to get, uh, they, they tend to get like hoagies, hoagies. What, what, what's the, what's the sandwich of choice in Illinois? <laughs> I have no idea. So- Rod? I, I don't know that I know the answer either because, uh, I mean, we had workers that came down from Wisconsin. We had uh, folks yeah. from, from Illinois. Uh, you're, you're in a, a large university town that has pretty much any ethnic uh, food that you could possibly want. So it really, uh, whatever the individual workers wanted to bring with them for lunch, uh, that, that's what was, uh, was acquired. Yeah. You know, and there's a, there was that one pizza place across the, Across the way, you yep. could see the wind turbine from there. That uh, I know is pretty popular, uh, but but uh, beyond that, geez, I'm, 
I don't know that there was any one particular thing. I know one thing they got. There was they a- got cold drinks because it was it was awfully chilly the whole time we were out there. Like Rod was talking about with the weather, uh, we you know, we were dodging snowflakes. So uh, they everybody had cold drinks. Normally in uh, in the November early December time frame is is very wet months in in Illinois and for whatever reason um, this particular year the the rains in November held off and then it got bitterly cold so the ground froze which allowed us to continue to work and not have as bad of uh, sloppy conditions as what we were kind of anticipating with the project so from my perspective uh, that was that was very beneficial for us to get work done. I think it's interesting uh, the nuts and bolts of uh, the day-to-day operations went through this whole thing, especially because like you can plan for, you know, there's a lot you can plan for in terms of your scheduling, but you know, sometimes the weather, the the weather gets in the way. There's a lot of unexpected things that uh, pop, a lot of unexpected things that pop up that you can't plan for, but it still seems like you guys were able to get through the whole process. I mean, pretty much as well as it could have gone because you, uh, I believe you said you got it done on time, on time and under budget. Is that tr- was that correct or? It was on oh, time. I mean, um, it actually, actually, it was early because our our goal was to have it done by December thirty first, and we actually uh, finished the project on December twenty second. So, and I, I I attribute that to the great project team that we put together because, um, you know, we didn't have everything go exactly the way it was supposed to go, but nobody got mad, nobody. Um, you know, threw up their hands and said, we can't do this. It was basically all hands on deck to be able to figure out, okay, what's the solution that we need to provide? So sometimes that meant that uh, SNC had to order something. Sometimes that meant that Ameren had to go find something in order to keep the project moving forward. So it was just a, a good partnership uh, with the project force. Yeah, and, and the uh, the Ameren project manager, Chad Rayleigh, uh, really was a pleasure to work with. Uh, Ed Haleva was the SNC project manager. Um, and I'm telling you that it, it's hard, it's hard enough to do a project. It's hard to do a project with a, with a, a tough customer, but I'm telling you, working with Ameren was, was fun. And everybody on the project team would tell you that, uh, you know, it was, it was similar to what we did with Encore. Encore was another great, uh, customer to work with. Uh, and so having a, a customer that works with you, like what Rod was talking about and what Chad did, that makes a, a huge, huge difference uh, because you can't you can't finish something like that safely um, in that timeline if you have a contentious relationship with your customer. It has to be a cooperative relationship where everybody's moving in the same direction, and it it plays back to what I was talking about with the division of responsibilities and and whatnot. And you know the uh, you did make a comment about <laughs> under budget. Uh, I, I think you'd have to say it depends on whose budget you were talking about. <laughs> But you know, it's, a, it's an old saying: you can have uh, you can have whatever you want, but you only get two out of the three when it comes to speed, quality, and cost. <laughs> so, in that case, you know, the the cost part, you know, it was reasonable, but still, I think it would be less expensive in every case to do something over a, a more reasonable time period. Um, and I, I don't think that's any any secret or or uh, some great mystery. So I was hoping to, to kind of talk about some of the, the different parts of this microgrid. So the project really involved, it was a, a nested 50 kilowatt microgrid within a one, meg, one megawatt microgrid. Um, and there was the 100 kilowatt wind turbine, the 125 kilowatt solar array, um, 500 kilowatt natural gas generators. But it says that- There's two of the them. 200, 
Oh, there's the, two, the two. two 500 kW natural gas generators. Yes, and then um, the 250 kilowatt, 500 kilowatt hour energy storage capability. And it says actually uh -huh. that the energy storage capability would serve as, as the backbone of the 50 kilowatt microgrid. Can you guys talk a little bit about what exactly that means, seeing that, that the storage capability serves as the backbone of the microgrid? Sure. So the 50 kW microgrid essentially is the uh, the building infrastructure on the site. So there's two buildings, our, our uh, microgrid control building, as well as our what we call the TAC or Technology Application Center control building. Uh, total loads served by those two buildings uh, is around 50 kW. And so um, we do demonstrations. Typically, we give tours of our facility on Thursdays. And we demonstrate the ability to actually be connected to the grid and then island or disconnect from the grid using that 50 kW load and the battery. And why the battery is so important is because in order for us to um, have seamless transitions, the battery essentially is the device that is providing us with the energy when we are in getting through the process to go from grid connected to islanded. The battery also allows the solar and the wind inverters to operate once we have islanded to come back on so that we can actually uh, operate with that 50 kW microgrid for an indefinite period of time. And, and actually we've done that for 24 hours um, in a simulation of what we call storm mode of operation. Um, back in 2017. So the two devices that can provide us with a voltage source in order for us to either island the 50 kW or the uh, the one megawatt is the energy storage battery as well as the uh, natural gas generators that can actually be voltage sources in order for the other assets to, to get their voltage uh, sources um, to them so that they can actually turn on and operate according to the, the, the IEEE standards that the wind and solar have to operate under. Yeah, and, and to, to follow that up, yeah, it's all about having a, a grid-forming asset, right? And and so one of the things that Ameren asked us to do as part of this was to be able to operate the microgrid in a, in a state where there was no carbon content, i.e. without the natural gas generators. Um, and so the two grid-forming assets at the site are the natural gas grid, uh, the natural gas reciprocating engines, and the energy storage system. And so the energy storage system uh, is it's important to have it sized appropriately and, and where it's at, so that it can actually turn on uh, the other assets. It can provide a a grid signal for those assets to sync to, uh, and allow them to produce power. So that's why that was important. And, and you know, if you go on uh, SNC's website, you can see where uh, Ameren was able to island the facility using nothing but the battery and renewables for 24 straight hours. Uh, and and it's it's pretty fascinating use case as you're going through there. Um, and the other the other kind of unique part of this, which uh, Rod hinted at, was that this um, this microgrid actually syncs with the grid at two different voltages in two different locations. So it will sync locally at the at the building, and then it'll sync with the the actual breaker uh, B100 that that is that entire feeder, and that's when it picks up the larger the larger load. And so the uh, the energy storage system kind of provides that shock absorber or buffer that allows that uh, the system to really make those two connections uh, seamlessly. 
Um, so, Rod, earlier uh, you mentioned something about uh, about a regulator about a regulatory piece. What were some of the regulatory walls you kind of bumped up against, and how did how did uh, relationships with uh, the city and the regulators uh, influence this process? So, um, the original project, we thought we were going to be able to own the generation. <clears throat> and so, as we're going through the process, we're, we're, we're interviewing different uh, entities to, um, you know, select who our partners are going to be. Um, we, we were actually visiting one of the sites, and we, we had a final legal opinion come down from our corporate group that said we absolutely could not own the generation because at that point, um, the approved project had the cost of the generation built into it as well. And so with that realization, we uh, started talking to our project partners. Our project partners had ideas about different companies that we could possibly lease this from. SNC was one of them that uh, gave us ideas on what we could do. Uh, we thought about actually having Emron, Missouri uh, fund it through uh, corporate as a as a potential possibility, and we came down to the fact that we felt like um, the best solution was what we went with, where we have an operating lease with a company for 84 months in order to uh, not own the not own the assets, not cause any uh, conflicts with uh, the regulator regulators or the legislators in Illinois from that standpoint. From a uh, from a uh, permitting perspective we had to go through a lot of uh, activities to make sure that we didn't have any endangered species that were in the um, the local area we didn't have any birds of prey that uh, were nesting too close to the site uh, we of course had to, to meet the the height restrictions uh, city of champagne uh, limits you to 175 feet in height as well as we had to be um, a thousand foot from the nearest uh, residential um, customer with our siting of the uh, wind turbine. So we had to look at uh, what the um, environmental aspects were for the natural gas generators to make sure that uh, we didn't have any special air permitting requirements that had to be done. So lots of uh, complexities that we had to go through to make sure that uh, uh, we had permission to move forward. So uh, one of the big things I've gotten from this conversation is that when you're undertaking this kind of process, um, it's very, very important to have thorough planning and clear communication with your partners because it because it it requires a lot of a lot of hands and a lot of hands on the project and a lot of uh, and a lot of people involved and it's a long process. But it sounds like you guys. Um, had every had everything in a good place from the ground floor. So, uh, my question for both of you, and uh, David, we'll start with you. Uh, what would you say to a company that's maybe considering this kind of project, is on the fence about this kind of project? What would you say to them that they have to keep in mind before going into things? And uh, is there an instance where maybe they shouldn't start one of these projects, or what should they look for when they're when they're planning this out? So that's a, a, a question with a lot of answers, Dylan. Uh, the, the first one I would say is, come on in, the water's warm, right? I mean, we're we're getting to the point now where uh, companies like SNC have done a few of these, uh, and, and we've started to to learn lessons associated with each one of these projects. 
Um, I hesitate to call them, you know, we have the scars to prove it, but the fact of the matter is we have the scars to prove it. Uh, we, we've done these projects and we're starting to figure out, um, and, and Amherst is really our, our alpha case for this, um, how to put together a modular microgrid. So whereas in the past, you know, these, you know, I, I coined a phrase called, if you've seen one microgrid, you've seen one microgrid. It became rather popular in the microgrid industry, which is still a, a relatively small industry. Um, but, you know, it, I, I learned early on that it was time to find a way to kill that saying to make it no longer valid. And, and Amron was really the first step in that. So from those lessons that we, we've learned through the projects we've done, we're making it a lot easier. We're, we're making it a lot, uh, a lot more simple for the, for the customer by combining some of these things and standardizing some of the pieces of equipment to make sure that the, the complexity that was so problematic in past projects is really simplified going forward. So, you know, my first thing would be, come on in, the water's warm. Uh, it's not as scary as you think it is. Uh, it, it really isn't. The second one I think is important is understand that things are going to change. Uh, that, that's, that's what happens with these because they are new. I'll give you a for instance that happened at Ameren, which totally turned the project on its ear. So uh, one of uh, Rod's colleagues, Roger, uh, was talking to us about the sequence of operations. Now, this is a sequence of operations that is already approved, and we're already programming the sequence of operations. And, and Roger, who is in charge of distribution, distribution engineering, comes along and says, yeah, that's not going to work for me. And, and, you know, everybody stops. We all go, uh, I'm sorry, what? And, uh, you know, he said, he goes, look, you can't cause two outages for every one outage. So I understand if we have a sudden loss of utility voltage, the microgrid goes dark and you reform the grid using the energy storage system, the renewable assets, and away you go. He said, but you can't have a second outage when we go back to utility power, right? Everything goes dark again, and then you let utility power come back in. He's like, yeah, we have two measurements. The first one is SADI, which is the System Average Interruption Duration uh, Index. And he's like, that'll be great because that's going to go way down. He goes, but the System Average Interruption Frequency Index, SAFI, you're going to double it. You've got to find a way to fix that. And so that actually fundamentally changed the design. And we did that on the fly. Uh, and, and it became a fantastic change. And really, it, it made the uh, another first uh, out of the Ameren microgrid. It became the first microgrid to be able to seamlessly transition back to utility power at medium voltage um, in, in North America. Now that's a standard part of our microgrid offering. And so as you go through in the modular microgrid offering that we have, so as you go through these processes, you learn things and you understand, and then you incorporate them into what's going forward. And, and that's, I think, the, the important part for people to, to really take away is, one, the water's warm. Two, be ready for change. But the more you do this, uh, the, the less impact you, you feel from those, those changes that the customer throws your way. So those would be the, the two things. I would say, and I'm sure Rod has has some as as well. So, if I was talking to a, a, another utility, which actually I have <clears throat> quite a few times um, about our project, one of the first things that I tell them is that they need to be very specific about what's their goals. Why are they wanting to build the microgrid? Is it a research microgrid, or is this really for you know improving the reliability and resiliency for their consumers? And so they need to be very specific about the goals of which uh, the microgrid, you know, the customers that they're going to be serving. 
once uh, they've established those goals, then they need to go through a, a, a detailed process of understanding what, who's going to be served by the microgrid, what their loading characteristics are, and then they need to match up generation sources with those specific loads to meet the goals that they've got for the project. I think one of the, the good things that we had in, in dealing with S&C is that we had fairly well-defined in the beginning what, what our goals were, um, but I think S&C also helped us to further develop those goals so that uh, we had clear and concise uh, uh, understandings of what the project was going to entail, and so we were able to uh, successfully make that happen. So understanding uh, their goals behind the project as well as understanding the individual components with which they want to uh, actually make the project happen. I'd have to imagine if I was driving around my community and I started to see a project like this going on, you know, I see a huge wind turbine going up in the middle of, of my town, um, I would be interested. You know, I'd start asking questions like, oh, what's, what's going on here? So have you guys, you know, talked at all to the residents in that area and, you know, what their perception is on the project and really how, how well it's been received in the surrounding residential community? So uh, a couple answers to your question. So first of all, um, the day after the wind turbine was erected, um, Amherst, Illinois received a quest customer inquiry about uh, what was the University of Illinois doing with the wind tower on campus. So you have to understand that this location is, is adjacent to the University of Illinois property. And so uh, immediately with the wind tower going up in the air, um, interest was definitely, you know, was there from, from consumers. Um, the original intent of the technology application center is a smart grid test bed. And so we have purposely not educated or talked to our customers that we serve out of this location because um, we didn't want them to be overly um, concerned about them being served from a testing facility. And uh, we actually took extra measures in, in, into consideration to make sure that we provide them with very reliable power and their, their power has been very reliable. So at this point, we probably could talk to the customers uh, to let them know that they are actually on this facility. Um, with the um, inclusion of the microgrid and the fact that we have lots of interest, and as I said before, we give tours on Thursdays, I would say uh, a vast majority of our customers probably conceive the fact that they um, are being served from this facility just because of the number of tours we've given. Um, over the course of the last year and a half, I think we've had over a thousand people actually tour the facility to uh, see how we operate a smart grid test bed as well as how the microgrid is actually operating. And, and as I said before, we, you know, we actually demonstrate the ability to do seamless transitions uh, from grid connected to islanded, islanded back to grid connected. And then Dylan, in a strange twist of fate, uh, after the microgrid was, uh, was was put into operation, my son decided to go to the University of Illinois in Champaign and, and study engineering. So uh, <laughs> strangely, uh, while he's not necessarily on that circuit, my, my son is one of those people that's down there and, and he's able to explain to people, because I took him on a tour, exactly uh, what the microgrid does and, and how it works. So it's uh, it's pretty neat. Uh, that comes full circle for you. We have we have folks like the Champaign Sustainability Council and several of the University of Illinois professors have brought their classes uh, down so that they could see uh, 
you know, how this is operating, um, renewables classes, uh, wanted to understand how solar and wind was actually being incorporated into this. So uh, lot, lots of tours, lots of people that uh, are learning about uh, the capabilities that we have there. I, I certainly applaud you guys for taking that step of you know, allowing people to come and tour and really educate you know, customers on, on what exactly this means, this microgrid means, and, and how you're starting to incorporate, incorporate renewables into um, the electricity that they consume. I, you know, I, I think that is very underestimated these days or undervalued as it is right now. And so continuing you know, with that education, bringing the residences the residents along this journey with you is it's really really meaningful yeah can Aaron and I come <laughs> yes absolutely what right. what day what what day are you going to be there uh I'll check I'll check the calendar and get back to you uh what day of week uh, always on a Thursday he told you earlier it's always, always on, on a Thursday, Thursday. <laughs> oh my goodness I got gut this is the second time this episode, I got got by you guys. Oh man! We well, try. It's uh, it was really nice having you guys on. Uh, c- uh, congratulations on getting the certification. Uh, Rod, thanks for coming on and uh, explaining the ho- the whole process of this project. And thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed the uh, conversation this afternoon. And David, thanks for coming on again and. Uh, Telling us about how, telling us about what the you know promise of this kind of project is, and how to properly communicate with a bunch of partners. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me again. And you know, anytime you guys give me an opportunity to come here and talk to your audience, I I really appreciate it. And thank you to both uh, Aaron and and Dylan for doing a great job as uh, moderators and hosts. Well, we very much appreciate that. Uh, Aaron, thanks for thanks for coming on and. Uh, and uh, prompt in some of the better technical-minded questions that you're much better at fielding than I am. Oh, you're welcome, Dylan. It's part of my job, but I am going to take Rod up on that offer. I, I definitely want to go tour that that microgrid facility. That 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 sounds you know really interesting to me. That's something that I get excited about. You should see the size of my eyes right now. Um, but always, Dylan, thank you for having hosting the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. To find our research and media, go to etsinsights.com. You can find us on Twitter at uh, zprime underscore research. You can find me at dylockwood and Aaron at Aaron underscore Hardick. Uh, my name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.